sweet of him. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. This isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. That UFO podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. This is David Marler, UFO researcher, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. Joining me in the middle of March for this interview, the guest is a writer and journalist with articles published in many outlets including Vice and the Toronto Star. I have Daniel Otis. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. No, it's good to have you on. Obviously, we're going to get to your article that was written recently uh, and you've written a few articles on UFOs looking back through your website and, and Vice as well. But I want to know a little bit about yourself and to, to tell the listeners your background. Um, so let's dig a little bit into that. Growing up, did you have any interest in UFOs or any sort of related phenomenon as a kid or even older? Sort of in passing as a kid, you know, I, I grew up in the 90s. The X-Files was on TV. Uh, I would read books on the subject a little bit as a kid and then have nightmares and stay up all night. Uh, but yeah. definitely, you know, I, I would say probably after the age of 10 or 11, the interest started, it faded for me. It wasn't something I really uh, looked into anymore. You know, now, now I work as a journalist. I've been working as a journalist for over a decade. Uh, my writings appeared in more than two dozen publications, uh, including Toronto Star, Globe and Mail, Slate, The Diplomat, etc., and it's only been in the past year that my interest in the subject is renewed. And it was specifically because in April 2020, when the Pentagon confirmed the veracity of uh, some videos that had been previously released by the New York Times, it really, uh, you know, came to my attention and I became very interested. And I started researching the topic and trying to see what sort of information I could find from the Canadian military and transportation officials here. Um, you know, and that's led now to, I guess I've done nine feature investigations on the subject for Vice News, including my most recent one, which included uh, nearly 300 pages of UFO reports, mostly from um, airline pilots, but also including reports from soldiers, police officers, citizens, etc. Had you ever had any of your own sightings or was it just purely that that kind of childlike interest in the subject, the X-Files and Hollywood movies and like your, I grew up in the 90s like yourself as well. So I think that was a lot a lot of my background to it. Um, you know, it's, it's funny you ask me that. Yes. Uh, in my very early 20s, I went on a road trip uh, across the U.S., and we were camping in Death Valley National Park in, in California. And one of the nights we were there, I saw a light high up in the sky, bouncing around in a way I'd never seen anything move before. 
But frankly, I actually didn't think anything of it. Um, you know, if you look at a map of where Death Valley, California is, it's absolutely surrounded by American military test ranges. So I, I just figured the Americans were testing something weird that night. Um, and I never thought anything more of it. Again, it really was, you know, 2020 that really sparked my interest. I went back, I read the New York Times coverage, uh, tried to catch up on everything I could before I started writing on the subject. Well, has it become easier since you mentioned the New York Times article December 2017 and, of course, the follow-ups? As a journalist, to pitch UFO stories, have you found that that article helped? Yes, yes and no. I, I think it's specifically in the United States, we're seeing that the mainstream media has a growing receptiveness to uh, you know, the seriousness of the subject. Uh, you know, it's gone from New York Times in December 2017 to now pretty much every mainstream uh, media outlet in the U.S. Has, has done something on the topic. Um, in Canada, it's, it's been a bit of a challenge insofar as if you look at Canadian media coverage, while mainstream Canadian media is very happy to piggyback on something, let's say, CNN did, uh, we're not seeing any we're not really seeing much Canadian data enter into mainstream news coverage here in Canada. I think it's early days yet. I think the U.S. is a little further uh, advanced than we are here in Canada. I'm not exactly sure on the media landscape where you are. Uh, while it's getting easier, it's not easy. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. There's a receptiveness to the topic, but there's also still a lot of wariness in the newsrooms uh, in North America. Um, but it's changing slowly, surely it's changing. And, and really, we, we can thank uh, the New York Times for opening that door in uh, late 2017. In the UK, it's a very slow burn uh, in terms of the the media. It's reported in the press. It's usually a joke headline or, you know, we've got some of the red top <clears throat> tabloids who'll, who'll talk about, you know, aliens abducted me and stole my underwear type laugh laugh along kind of headlines it's never really reported within the the broadsheets in a serious way and sky news and bbc tend to tend to avoid the subject as well i think in the last couple of years especially with covid being you know the dominant headline it's just never had any of the traction that we saw pick up in the us translate over to here unfortunately but hopefully that that continues to change and, and you mentioned in canada it's changing um uh, probably a little bit further along than we are here in the uk how are UFOs as a subject treated in Canada? You've mentioned the media, but what about that kind of public perception? Well, I, I can't speak for all of my uh, compatriots here in Canada, but I, I think especially with the younger generations, uh, you're seeing a, a growing receptiveness. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, my first story on the subject was published in Vice in, uh, I guess it would have been April, April uh, 2021. And, you know, in the lead up to that, I was talking to a lot of my friends and peers about my, you know, sort of new research interest. And, you know, a lot of them thought I'd gone off the deep end a little bit. Like I, I've been writing for mainstream outlets in, you know, Canada for a decade. This is this is seen as something, you know, far outside the norm. You know, and I had a few people who were sort of questioning my sanity. But when I started showing them the sorts of documents I was pulling through our our freedom of information laws here, I think that really changed uh, people's perspectives as at least it allowed them to be open to the possibility that we're dealing with something mysterious here. Um, and I, I think especially the New York Times coverage and the videos that they released, 
the interviews, you know, with uh, fighter pilots and military personnel in the U.S. have seen things. They're all help. They're all helping sort of erode the stigma. I, I wouldn't say we've arrived where we can just have you know normal, frank conversations with everyone about the subject the way you would about you know the weather. But um, we're, we're we're getting there. You know, attitudes are changing. It's it's podcasts like yours. It's coverage like mine. It's all of the sort of positive you know voices that are trying to amplify this that are making that difference. But you know, we haven't arrived. I don't think as a society at a point where you know we can properly discuss this rationally as a scientific issue. You know, there's still a lot of baggage associated with it. You know, things like the X-Files are to blame. It's just not taken seriously. It's the butt of jokes in a lot of, uh, you know, media articles about it. But it's changing. It's changing. It's, uh, it's definitely the paradigm is shifting. Well, outside of the US, UK and Australia, Canada is the fourth highest demographic listenership for myself. So thanks and hi to any Canadian listeners out there as well. Do you think there's anything, Daniel, that could open the floodgates in terms of that <laughs> stigma and interest in Canada? Or is it a case of they, they closely follow what's happening in the United States, given the kind of close proximity you have? Yeah, I, I mean, just, you know, following the, the US news, I think, is eroding that stigma here in Canada. Uh, but I think the main thing that we're not seeing in Canada that you see in the United States is, for the most part, our politicians aren't speaking openly on the subject. You know, in the U.S., you have uh, very outspoken uh, politicians like Florida Senator Marco Rubio, who's going on national TV and speaking calmly and rationally about the potential threat caused by UAP. That isn't really happening in Canada, except until very recently. You know, the first sitting Canadian politician in decades to make public comments on the subject actually did so last week. Uh, this is a, a member of parliament from the province of Manitoba, which is in central Canada. And he sits on a natural resources committee. His name's Larry McGuire. And last week in committee, Mr. McGuire asked Natural Resources Canada, a government department, which also oversees uh, some nuclear facilities, whether or not there had been any UAP reports at Canadian nuclear facilities. I mean, they didn't have immediate answers for him, but he's posed the questions uh, both in person and in writing, and they are going to be now obliged, the government is obliged uh, to respond to him in writing. I think seeing more stuff like that is going to make the difference. Seeing, you know, level-headed public officials asking serious questions about the subject, that's what we need to, you know, help elevate the topic. That's happening in the United States. And I think, you know, those brave politicians uh, have definitely helped break the ice. And, you know, now Mr. McGuire has in Canada and hopefully more will follow suit. Yeah, very well done to Mr. McGuire. That's not something I've seen make its way onto the my news feeds over here. So, so excellent. And that's something I'll have a little look into as well on the follow up. Now, you recently published your article in Vice. It's a fantastic piece on the Canadian government releasing 20 years worth of UFO files down to yourself largely because it was you that kept got the ball rolling on this over a, a period of many months, I think about nine months. How did this all come about for you? Mm. Well, I actually initially filed my request um, <clears throat> for, these, for these reports about a year ago, back in February of 2021. When they got back to me, they basically said that uh, I had filed the request with uh, Transport Canada, which is the government transportation department. They got back to me and basically said, you know, look elsewhere. Uh, I didn't believe them and I kept 
asking. Uh, so through several freedom of information requests, I was able to get these reports. The, the way I, I, I knew of their existence was uh, Transport Canada. Again, the, it's a Canadian federal agency. They maintain a online aviation incident database. So I, I found this early in my research, and this database is very interesting. You know, any kind of incident that happens uh, with a pilot in Canadian skies gets logged in here. That could be a bird strike, uh, mechanical failure, drunken, unruly passengers, and uh, UFO reports make it into into there as well. So, you know, by going through that database, I was able to pull a, a couple dozen UFO reports. And then through the Freedom of Information system, what I was trying to do was find the source reports that informed those public-facing ones I was finding. And that's what this newest story consists of. It's uh, you know nearly 300 pages of reports. And the majority of those reports were sent to Canadian transportation officials by a private company called Nav Canada, which owns and operates all of the civilian air traffic control infrastructure here in Canada. I think in most countries in the world, uh, air traffic control is operated by usually government agencies. Here in Canada, it's a private company, you know. So there, I would imagine in terms of radar data, tower recordings, et cetera, this private company probably holds most of the relevant data for anyone who wants to research UFOs in Canada. But as a private entity, obviously, you can't target it with uh, freedom of information requests. So, you know, I was able to figure out which departments within our federal transportation departments that the air traffic control company was speaking to. And then by in subsequent requests that were very specific, targeting the offices I knew that were communicating with this air traffic control company, that's how I was able to get these nearly 300 pages of reports. And, and that's great work and it's tenacious as well. Were you able to speak to any of the, the staff who work at air traffic control? Or is that something that's a bit off limits given it's not necessarily public facing like you say? Yeah, they they will respond with very generic statements about, you know, how they deal with these reports and forward them to relevant authorities. But I, I, I have yet to have a good on the record conversation with anyone there uh, that could, you know, give me some inner workings. Um, if anyone's listening and they're working in Canadian air traffic control, shoot me a line, give me a call. Always happy to talk on or off the record. Uh, but as of now, no, I, I have not been given an on-the-record look at the inner workings of how they handle this kind of stuff. But you know, the, the document trail is pretty clear. Air traffic control in Canada, they, you know, they're the first point of contact if a pilot sees something. You know, they're flying along, they radio air traffic control. Air traffic control then notifies uh, Transport Canada, the Federal Transportation Department, and they also notify the Canadian Air Force specifically a Canadian Air Force unit that's uh, affiliated with NORAD, NORAD being the joint Canada-U.S. air defense system that's been uh, guarding North American skies since uh, early in the Cold War. I think uh, my experience with NORAD would be using its uh, YouTube channel to track Santa when it's Christmas time with the kids, <laughs> so it's good to know that they've got other uses out there as well, or you're well not based. Well, Santa, Santa isn't the only thing NORAD's tracking. Um, you know, there's evidence in this story, for example, uh, there was one report specifically that involved a, a fisherman in the Bay of Fundy in the Atlantic and a woman at home in Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia being our, an Atlantic province here in Canada. And they both separately reported seeing something uh, glowing in the sky, hovering out over the ocean at night. 
these two individuals contacted a search and rescue center in the city of Halifax. The search and rescue center then contacted a NORAD uh, affiliated Air Force squadron. That squadron did conducted playback on NORAD radar and observed uh, a radar hits that correlated almost exactly to the time and location of the sighting. So there's a nice uh, instance where you can see, you know, uh, civilians see something. It's corroborated by NORAD radar. Uh, Santa isn't the only thing that NORAD, NORAD is tracking. That's good to know. And and that was one of the standouts, I think, from the, the pile that you went through. Like you say, there were almost 500 incidents reported within the 300 pages. Outside of anomalous craft, because you've mentioned already that it wasn't just, obviously, the potential for UFO or any unidentified objects. There were drone sightings, balloon sightings. There can be bird misidentifications. If anyone's looked at birds through binoculars at nighttime, they can look a little bit strange. But it's obviously the anomalous stuff we're looking at. Was there much information you came across that in terms of uh, like hitchhiker effect, time dilation, anything outside of it was anomalous, but not necessarily a craft? It's hard to say, you know, unfortunately, the vast majority of the, you know, UFO reports in here are lights in the sky, right? Yeah. Um, and because of the nature of the reporting structure, you know, for the most part, they're pretty brief. As I mentioned before, the first point of contact is air traffic control. So, you know, this is a radio conversation. It's not like the pilots are being sat down and interviewed about th these kinds of things. But, you know, some of the reports do describe things that I would say, you know, have anomalous flight characteristics, you know, things that sort of suddenly appearing and disappearing, things performing uh, very, you know, sharp turns, uh, as well as, you know, things traveling, you know, at estimated speeds, you know, above the speed of sound. You know, there was one incident in the report that involved a cargo flight from uh, New York to Anchorage, Alaska. And if my memory serves me right, this was in 2018. It encountered well over northern Canada. It encountered seeing an object that they thought was traveling above uh, Mach 4 and, you know, in flying in an erratic way. So within, within this, there are things that, you know, suggest some of these objects kind of defy conventional explanation. But yeah, at the same time, you know, there's a lot of misidentification. The reports contain obvious drones and balloons. Uh, there's, for example, I think from early 2019, there were a few uh, Starlink satellite sightings that were misidentified yep. as being UFOs, which is totally legitimate, you know, because back in 2019, that technology was just starting to be deployed, you know, into Earth orbit. So it wasn't familiar, you know, to people. And I think anyone seeing that for the very first time would definitely think they were seeing some sort of weird UFO. I mean, the first time I saw it, a Starlink satellite uh, train, I was, it took me aback, even though I knew what it was. It just looks so surreal when you see it the first time. So, you know, there, there's definitely, it's definitely a mixed bag. There's things in these reports that I think you could probably easily explain. And then there's things in there that are, that definitely are much more difficult to identify. Much like yourself, I remember my first Starlink satellite uh, experience where I was coming in from walking the dog and just over the top of the house, little light goes past and catches my eye. I'm always looking and another one comes past a few seconds later and I counted 15. And at first I wasn't sure, but once I got about halfway through and I'd got my wife to come out and look, it sort of clicked with me. This is going to be Elon Musk's satellites. And mm -hmm. obviously, like you say, they were hitting the news more and more. And yeah, it's pretty incredible though to see it because they 
they're there, they're in the sky. And if you don't have that knowledge, you're not on social media and following Elon Musk and everything he's doing. Like you say, you would report it as something very strange, very unusual, which it is anyway to see. Do you think those sorts of devices now being in the atmosphere are going to make it much harder for people to disseminate true, genuine UFO reports to to what might be a drone, civilian drone, high-altitude aircraft, or indeed a satellite? I am delighted to welcome a new sponsor to the podcast, VinoVest. As you all know, I've got a young family and I'm always looking at ways I can save and invest for the future. Fine wine has long been a cornerstone of wealth generation and preservation. The problem? Historically, it's been reserved for the ultra-wealthy. VinoVest is changing that. VinoVest is a platform allowing investors to own 100% of their portfolio and easily buy, sell or drink from their collection of fine wines. After missing out on all those next big things to invest in, I'm always looking for what is the next big player in the industry. I was amazed at how easy it was to get started in diversifying your investment portfolio. Wine has one third the volatility of the stock market and has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualised returns, proving that the returns can be as robust as your favourite red. VinoVest makes it easy to acquire new investments, equipped with a team of world-class sommeliers who evaluate wine and determine which ones will gain value over time. You own the wines in your portfolio outright. You can buy, sell and even drink them whenever you want. Enjoy historical returns, direct ownership of world-class wines, portfolio diversity and robust recession resistance. Go to zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod zero. That's the number zero. The link is also in the description to receive two months of fee free investing. That's two months of fee free investing. It's time to start investing with VinoVest today. Yeah, you know, that's definitely a challenge, uh, especially the way drone technology is today. You know, these things can have huge ranges and, you know, travel pretty fast. Um, but, you know, what, what for me, I think is what I find interesting and compelling is if you start looking at reports from, let's say, 2016 and earlier, you know, you're seeing things displaying the same sort of uh, anomalous flight characteristics at a time when that sort of drone technology was not commercially available. You know, and, and another story I did, for example, uh, it was a it was a story on specifically on uh, Canadian military sightings sightings at Canadian military installations. There was one particular base in Ontario called CFB North Bay, which uh, has uh, a lot of NORAD functions. Uh, there were UFO reports from that base involving multiple witnesses uh, in the years 2007 and in 1952. And the report from 1952 involved something that. Uh, was even stranger that had more, you know, exotic anomalous flight capabilities. And I guess for me, seeing that degree of historical continuity that, you know, over 55, you know, 55 years, the report from 55 years earlier is, is the stranger one suggests to me that, you know, a lot of these reports, or at least some of them are not, are not drones. You know, I, I, I don't think any military had that kind of capability in 1952. Uh, if they did, you know, I'd love to be proven wrong. But for me, just, you know, the breadth of the research, seeing that historical continuity decade after decade, where, you know, there remains a core nugget of 
of reports that are genuinely strange to me is very, very compelling. At the same time, I more than recognize, I think, you know, if you have a thousand different reports, a thousand different people are probably seeing a thousand different things. But there does seem to be a persistent small minority of these reports that just defy conventional explanation, you know. And I think for folks like me and folks like you, it, it's finding that kind of data and seeing that kind of data that inspires us to, you know, keep digging. Because if the only way we're ever going to get even close to answers is by, you know, having more and better data, right? So, uh, 100%. it's definitely, definitely seeing those sorts of reports decade after decade, for me suggests that you know it's not always drones. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're spot on in terms of the data. We see themes or connections like, you know, UAPs, large bodies of water, nuclear materials, military bases. Do you find any of these correlations in your research? Are there any particular areas over Canada where sightings are more prevalent than others? You know, I, I would have to take all the reports I found and input the GPS coordinates and I mean, that, that's a, a stage I have not yet accomplished. One, one thing I did do by putting, with my most recent story, by including all 290 pages of reports with the story, my hope was that people who were perhaps more scientifically minded than me could do some of that uh, data crunching. But that being said, you know, I, anecdotally, I, I can suggest that there are some areas where we seem to see more of these things. Uh, Canada's uh, Atlantic coast, for example, has a fair number of reports. Uh, there's often some interesting reports in and around the Great Lakes region. Uh, I, I see a, a fair amount of reports over Canada's prairie provinces, uh, Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And then there's uh, certain hotspots in British Columbia. For example, there's a, a, a city called, uh, a town called Williams Lake in central British Columbia, where, you know, I found a bunch of weird reports. So I, I can't say, you know, with scientific fact, these are the Canadian hotspots, but there seems to be a particular, um, you know, there seems to be more reports from certain areas, I can say anecdotally. Uh, in terms of Canadian military installations, um, I mean, a lot of them have had sightings, you know, like over the years, not all of them, uh, as far as I can tell, but a lot of them have. And, you know, that one instance, North Bay, uh, what I previously mentioned that had the reports in 1952 and 2007, you know, I found that one particularly interesting because that's the actual base that's uh, where there's a squadron that's tasked with identifying everything that's approaching North America. So if uh, like that, that is the, you know, that's where they do that. That's where they try to identify all the radar tracks. So for me, I found it pretty interesting that at the base that's supposed to be identifying things, they had two things show up right over the base that they could not identify. Uh, you've answered one of the listener questions. Jonathan was asking about uh, areas of strangeness in Canada, so that's a that's a good one. So thanks, Jonathan. Your question's been answered within there. Um, well, I, I, I can I can answer that one for Jonathan. So you know, yeah. we, we mentioned the case of NORAD radar corroborating a sighting over Canada's uh, over the Atlantic. That that was just around the corner from a place called Cole um, Cole. Sorry, a place called Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia. And Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia in 1967, I think it was October 1967, was the site of a very infamous mass sighting where multiple people witnessed a, a luminous object uh, disappear into the ocean. 
you know, search and rescue and et cetera were sent out to try and find it. They never could. And this sighting that uh, involved, you know, the more contemporary sighting was just in the same vicinity as that one. So, you know, perhaps there's there's a hotspot in the Atlantic. Again, this is none of this is scientific evidence, but anecdotally, you know, it seems to be uh, certain areas just seem to get sightings decade after decade. There's always listeners asking how they can get involved and help out. And with that report now being publicly available through through yourself and your, your FOIAs, people can go and do that for you now. And if there's anyone who wants to help out, then, you know, certainly reach out to Daniel and ask if there's any way they can go about it. But if you want to get involved and mine through the data, if you've got any programs that can check for patterns in the data in certain areas, then absolutely go ahead. That would be great. Even get in touch with myself and I can point you in the right direction. Um, the US military and government seem to be the main keepers of information on, on this subject on a global scale. It's always the US, always has been through uh, since it started back in the late 40s. And when you go, go through it, they're the bad guys or the good guys, depending what side of the fence you <laughs> fall down on this. Um, do you think there's an agreement between the US and Canada and perhaps even other countries to always share UAP related information with the US? I would ask particularly, Daniel, thinking you're talking about NORAD, and it's a joint venture between Canada and the US. Now, when you've got those systems and there, say there's some particularly tasty events happen, multiple tracks, some incredible data comes in, is it, is it still that joint cooperation or is it something you feel the US would take control and stronghold over? Ah, it depends. You know, my research in For Other Stories has come up with clear evidence that Canada shares data on UAP cases with the United States. For example, I found, you know, reports about, you know, so-called UFO incidents being shared with, um, you know, NORAD headquarters in Colorado, as well as uh, other U.S. Air Force bases. Um, In Canada, for the most part, there's little to no follow-up. When it, when it comes to UAP cases. And I, I think that's because Canada, the Canadian military and Air Force, uh, don't see this as a defense issue. So, you know, while there are uh, robust reporting mechanisms for documenting these cases, uh, in most cases, there's little to no follow-up, except, except, and this is what the, you know, they've told me specifically, except in cases that involve, uh, you know, credible threats, potential threats, or search and rescue. So there's been instances, I think there was one case I found where a woman saw something go into the ocean and they, they dispatched search and rescue, uh, a search and rescue helicopter. There was another case where something was uh, tracked moving quite quickly towards North America on NORAD radar and they dispatched Canadian fighter jets, which couldn't find anything. It, it's Hard to say if, you know, the U.S. is taking the lead on Canadian data. I don't have a sense that that's happening. You know, the, the American bodies that have been created to investigate this, you know, historically have been through the U.S. Navy, right? And can, Canadian data is being sent to the U.S. Air Force and NORAD, which historically have shown less of a public facing interest in the subject. So once Canadian data gets to the United States, I I can't tell you what's happening with it. I I really wish I knew, Um, but I'm not entirely sure if, you know, for example, if Canadian data goes to the U S air force, if the U S air force would then, you know, share that with any, you know, Pentagon UFO 
uh, investigation bodies. I, it, it's so hard to say, you know, the, the reason I've been able to get so much information out of our military and government is specifically because they don't see this as a, as a defense or security issue. You know, under uh, our access to information legislation, as it is in most countries, anything, any information that has a uh, defense or security nexus can be withheld in the freedom of information process, right, on national security grounds. Uh, so in Canada, because we don't see this as that issue, I'm able to get like all kinds of reports and all kinds of data. You ask any journalist who's researching the subject in the United States, while you can get perhaps a politician to give you an on-the-record interview about you know, how serious this is, in the U.S. it's, it's almost impossible to get high-quality case data because it's all withheld from their FOIA process on national security grounds. So once those Canadian reports are getting to the U.S., you know, I, I know that data from some of them has been sent. I, I don't know what the U.S. is doing with it. I sure would like to know, though. Some really prominent people in various different fields, like Ross Coulthard, prominent Australian journalist, uh, George Knapp, obviously a massive journalist in terms of this subject in the last 30 or 40 years now, Avi Loeb, noted astrophysicist from Harvard, are coming out and they're sharing their opinions and ideas. And we're hearing terms thrown about now like extraterrestrial, interdimensional, time travel, you know, future us, different realities being talked about in a very serious way. As a journalist now, digging into this subject, are you starting to form an opinion on what some of these more anomalous craft could potentially be? You know, it's... I, I entertain ideas, but for me, frankly, I, I'm very satisfied just to know that uh, there's a mystery that's alive and well on our planet, you know, that we as humans have not figured everything out and that we're being confronted with evidence of something, uh, you know, that does seem quite, you know, different, you know, different from our realm of experience. Um, have I formed specific opinions as to, you know, what these things are, I don't know, you know, they could be a thousand, like I said, a thousand people could be seeing a thousand different things. Uh, I'm sure there's no one answer. I, I think anyone who thinks, you know, Earth is alone for harboring life in the universe is probably uh, naive, right? You know, the our, our, our galaxy contains, you know, over a billion stars and there's over a, a billion known galaxies in the universe, right? The, the chances of life being out there are very high. Now, the other question is, is there, you know, some life form that's been able to visit us and ha has made that, you know, has that kind of technology? I don't know. I think the probability of that's a lot lower. But, you know, we live in a universe where anything's possible. But for me, you know, if you read my stories, they're totally void of speculation. Um, that's not what I'm really engaged with. You know, I, for me, it's a matter of presenting... Uh, you know, declassified records and interviews with military personnel, you know, government officials, etc., in order to just help establish the fact that there is a very real mystery that's alive and well on our planet. I, I leave it to more scientific minds than me to come up with those answers. Uh, but for now, I'm very content to shed light on that mystery and find data. And I, and I just want to bring up one other thing that um, to your previous question about information being shared. You know, um, Canada, the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, the U.K., we're all tied into something called the uh, the Five Eyes Alliance, which yeah. allows for intelligence sharing, um, you know, between these English uh, language countries. And, you know, while I haven't found any evidence that there's been UA UAP briefings or UAP material brought through the Five Eyes 
organization, you know, it stands to reason that there would be communication on the topic through Five Eyes because, you know, this is something that the U.S. military and, you know, members of the U.S. government have been very outspoken about as being a potential defense and security issue. I would find it shocking if that information had not been conveyed to U.S. allies like Canada and the U.K., I, I think that information sharing is happening. It stands to reason. Unfortunately, I can't like hold up a piece of paper and say, you know, this proves it. But uh, it stands to reason that, you know, our governments uh, are a little more integrated and a little more knowledgeable about the subject than they're letting on. Yeah, from a UK point of view, uh, peek behind the curtain here, folks. Uh, I'm part of a group, UAP Media UK, that people will know about. Um, and we were talking in our in our private chat yesterday that there was a questions for the UK Parliament page had had been put up, and one of the local MPs had asked about UAP incursions and were there any data being shared from the United States on these classified briefings we're now hearing about and Baroness Goldie who who deals in some aspects of that I can't remember her exact position here in the in the UK government she had previously laughed off this subject live in parliament when questioned about it no interest whatsoever on the surface anyway but our, our some of my colleagues I don't necessarily subscribe to this saw her answer yesterday online where she mentioned that they wouldn't talk about any classified information that had been shared as a positive that there was a potential discussion being had about UAPs I think personally she was just answering the notion that anything classified obviously wouldn't be discussed so there was no conversation to be had but like you say in terms of the UK if that's any sign of progress then you kind of take it because that's what we're kind of scrapping about for just now and like you say the five eyes agreement you would have to think even if it was being led by the us there has to be some sort of information exchange going going back and forward there i wanted to ask him and this is one of the listener questions from uh, gnosis Uh, daniel's only recently started investigating the topic yet has managed to uncover a whole lot of new information does daniel believe there's a lot more sitting on the shelf just waiting to be unearthed has UAP reality been held back, not so much by cover-up, but by the fact that historically, journalists have simply failed to look properly and ask the right people the right questions? Uh, short answer, yes and yes. Uh, there's a lot more sitting on my shelf personally that I've yet to put out there and write about. And so more stories to come from me. Um, yeah, you know, like, like I said, when I especially in Canada, uh, you know, journalists, mainstream journalists have not touched the subject. Um, you know, when I started doing it, I, as I said, I've been working as a journalist for over a decade. I spent a lot of time doing international reporting of Southeast Asia and investigations. I was basically, you know, applying journalistic practices uh, of investigative journalism, you know, to this topic as I would with any other topic. And, um, I, I think in journalism in Canada, you know, this this data has been there. This data has been sitting there for two decades. I think it's just, you know, the right person hasn't right asked the right questions. And even when I first started filing my access to information requests, as I mentioned, you know, I, I got these 290 pages, but the first time I asked for them, they told me to, to look elsewhere, that they didn't have them. And it, it was because, you know, one thing you have to, in any, if you're, any sort of researcher, you, you can't take no for an answer. And uh, you can't, you should never be afraid of asking the same question multiple times in multiple different ways, expecting no as an answer, you know. Um, 
So all, all of this just, is just to say, you know, no way, you know, I think there were UFO researchers, like people, ufologists, people who were looking at this material. I, I've met several, uh, you know, citizen UFO researchers who had been able to pull excellent data through our freedom of information request and then couldn't get anyone in the media to pay attention to it. You know, like the, I've had these conversations with folks. I, I came across this material, this type of material independently. And, uh, you know, when I first started getting returns, it just inspired me to keep digging harder and harder, you know, realizing that there is stuff here. Uh, you know, when those first access to information requests arrived in my in my inbox, I was just I was staggered. You know, I had filed the request expecting nothing. And then here the stuff came in. Um, so, you know, I, I think I'm hoping that people, uh, mainstream journalists in Canada and, and around the world, uh, you know, can start looking into the archives and records of their own countries, because, you know, this is not uh, unique to the United States or Canada. Uh, this people see unusual things around the globe. Um, and it's just sort of taken, you know, it's unfortunate, but like, some of the data I pulled, I, I that I pulled through access to information requests, I've had Canadian UFO researchers contact me after publication and say, "Hey, I was able to get the same documents, you know, like before you even started writing on this subject, and they can prove it." You know, the data has been there. People have been looking. Unfortunately, those who can convey that information to you know large audiences, like me working in journalism, they hadn't been looking at this stuff. Uh, I hope I hope my work inspires other people to keep digging because, you know, I'm sure there's things I'm missing. I'm sure there's questions I'm not asking. Um, it would be great to have have more people join me in this hunt here in Canada. One of those citizen investigators would be Chris Rutkowski, mm -hmm. um, whose book UFOs Declassified, Canada's UFOs Declassified, beg your pardon, uh, is coming out at the end of the month. And I'm hoping, uh, I'm just waiting on a date being arranged through his publications, but having him on the podcast this, to discuss just that, the book and, and that kind of background work he's done as well. Y you mentioned you've got things on the shelf that you want to you want to write about. Is there anything that now you're getting your teeth into the UFO subject for, for over a year, that you would really like to to go. You've obviously looked at encounters. I suppose there's only so many articles you can write about lights in the sky. Other other areas of the UFO phenomenon, like abductions, crash retrievals, that really interest you, and you're just waiting for the right time or the right information. To back up to Chris for a second, I just want to yeah, bring go. something up about Chris. Um, Chris Chris is a he's a Winnipeg-based uh, ufologist. He's been working on the subject for, I guess, over 30 years. Uh, he produces an annual uh, UFO survey that basically tries to collect, you know, all UFO sightings that happen in Canada. And, um, you know, interestingly, you know, through my research, I found out that Chris had been receiving UFO reports directly from transportation officials and the Canadian Air Force for about two decades. Uh, he had basically found out that, you know, they weren't doing anything with them and they, you know, had an arrangement where he was receiving this stuff, you know, unredacted without having to go through the access to information system uh, for his research, which, which was, you know, quite fascinating. I think I have one in front of me, you know, there's UFO procedures from the Canadian Air Force. I'll cover up his email address, but it says, you know, send them to Chris, send them yeah. to Chris. Um so, you know, I, I just want to emphasize that the Chris has played a, a very important role in, uh, in collecting data on this subject. 
Um, back to your actual uh, the question about do I want my interests to, you know, there's a bit of a fine line to walk here. It's it's early days in Canadian media and widespread acceptance of the yeah. veracity of this topic, and I, I'm acutely aware of the fact that my ability to tell uh, these stories in mainstream outlets for mainstream audiences is contingent on. Uh, my sticking to verifiable information, right? Mm -hmm. Documents, on-the-record interviews, you know, military procedures, et cetera. I'm very concerned that if I deviate from that path and begin looking into, you know, or at least begin writing about, uh, you know, experiencers, uh, alleged retrievals, it will inherently negatively impact my ability to convey, you know, the verifiable information to mainstream audiences. Do you hear me? So yeah. like I, I have, I have, I definitely have a personal interest in those, in those types of narratives, but, you know, at least from my perspective and, and the sort of research I'm doing, uh, at least in, in terms of Canada, I have yet to find too many cases or data that's, you know, verifiable that relates to those types of cases of experiencers, alleged abductions, you know, retrieved materials, et cetera. In terms of in the contemporary Canadian record, uh, there are not official records I have found that relate to that. So that that's going to, you know, that for me, that means that it, it's not something I'm going to go, a path I'm going to go down. I certainly am interested and I read those things, but, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, there's so little data when it comes to those types of cases. And, you know, it's so important to be able to prevent, uh, to present verifiable information. You know, that's why with the stories I put out there, every single story for the most part includes PDFs with all of my source material. Um, so there's no mystery, right? So there, there's no questioning yes. where this stuff is coming from. Um, unfortunately, you know, these sorts of cases that you bring up, it's, it's just so much anecdotal information. And while certain ones are very compelling, you know, for example, like the events of uh, rural Zimbabwe, um, mm. you know, it, without the without the additional verifiable records to support it, it's hard for me to convey those t- those types of stories to a mainstream audience. Yeah, I can appreciate why you want to tread lightly because you go from being someone presenting an incredible subject, but the verifiable facts, the evidence, the data, to jumping the shark almost to being the guy who all of a sudden is talk about talking about recovered alien bodies from the shag harbor event that one guy said he saw and you know it starts to snowball into that and you you lose your your respect amongst the colleagues and also your platforms to get that larger message out when the time comes so i i can appreciate that i I think but you know for anyone who's engaged in producing research and material on the subject you know we all we all are sort of playing a part in a greater movement towards disclosure you know I'm aware of of the lane I want to take, which is, you know, sticking to these declassified records and interviews with officials, you know, because that's that's what I can do to contribute, you know, hopefully to a broader movement of disclosure. And and there's other platforms that I think are much better suited uh, than me in my writing to tell those other sorts of stories. 
You mentioned just before, and I've got one final question, um, that no researcher or journalist should ever be scared to ask the same question again and get no for an answer or, you know, be shot down and you never know. So I'm going to ask you the same question, very similar to what I asked you before uh, around your opinion, but from one of the listeners and see if you how you feel. So is the evidence, uh, this is from Walker, is the evidence Daniel has seen enough to convince him we are dealing with a non-human intelligence? The evidence that I've seen has been enough to convince me that prosaic explanations don't work for some of these cases. As to whether or not that's a a non-human intelligence, I personally, I I, I don't have the data to answer that question. You know, and one thing I've brought up in other interviews too is, is even if this all proves to be human-made technology, I think the implications for our species and society are huge. You know, of course, you, you see these things, reports of things traveling faster than the speed of sound and making right-angle turns without slowing down. You know, to me, that shows that on this planet there perhaps is a technology uh, that you know. You know, if this is all human made, it would it would mean that somebody has created a new form of propulsion, as well as, uh, you know, perhaps harnessed a new energy source that could eliminate our dependence on that could potentially eliminate our dependence on fossil fuels, you know, which are choking our planet. So even if this is all human made technology, the implications for our society and species are huge. I mean, it's it's you know, it's possible we're dealing with another intelligence, but, you know, nothing, I I don't have, you know, that evidence (laughs) to to say that with certainty. And frankly, I'm I'm pretty skeptical of anyone who does have definitive answers in this field. Uh, To me, you know, the, the volume of research I've done just indicates that we have a mystery that, that we ought to take seriously to solve, you know, whether it, what the answer is, I don't know, but I, I'm really excited to, you know, find out. And I, I hope that's something we, we learn in our lifetime. That's a really nice place to start wrapping up, Daniel. Um, can I just ask finally, what's next for you? What are you going to be working on? And how can people get in touch and follow your work as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have, listen, there's a lot more uh, documents I have on my shelf that I'm going through and writing about. Uh, and pretty much everything I get, I put out into the world. So uh, there's more stories yet to come. Uh, I believe we sh- uh, you should see a story from me involving uh, uh, a very interesting witness, uh, a, a uniformed witness here in Canada that should be coming soon. Um, you can follow my work. I'm, uh, my personal website is danielotis.ca. I post all my stories and podcast appearances and stuff there. I'm very active on Twitter where you can find me at dsotis. Um, that's a great place to follow me because, for example, let's say I write a a story about a case, and then a few months later, additional declassified records come in. Well, I'm, I'm not going to write a whole new story based on these additional documents. So I usually post stuff like that onto Twitter. So my website, daniellotus.ca, follow me on Twitter at dsotus. You can find me on other social media, although I'm less active, and uh, there will be more and bigger stories yet to come, I hope. All those links will be in the description and the website has the links to all the articles as well that we've talked about, including the one on Chris Rutkowski and obviously the 20 years of UFO sightings as well. Daniel, it's been great having you on and look forward to hosting you again, hopefully in the future. Hey, thanks so much for having me. This was fun.
That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little more Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. And I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head. And everything was weird and everything was red. I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And they think I should because it doesn't really scare me. If you really want to know who I think I'd be, I think it's you and me and us and we and him and her and that and she and that thing over there and what's that, Jay?